Good morning. I invite you to take your pew Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Continuing in our series here this morning in the book of Daniel, you'll find that on page 885. And like we've been doing with every chapter of Daniel so far, we'll read the whole thing. It's one of the shorter ones. Daniel's got some lengthy, uh, lengthy chapters in there. This one, not so much. But we're going to continue to look at this apocalyptic literature, these visions that Daniel has of beasts. Um, And this passage that we're going to look at is somewhat of a a direct continuation and almost kind of a spin-off of the chapter that's come before it. Um, When Daniel saw a variety of ungodly beasts coming out of the sea, We're going to concentrate on two of them here this morning. But really what we're going to wrestle with um, throughout this message is um, not only the nature of these uh, beasts, but their relation to us as the people of God and uh, even God himself and how we can apply that uh, to the here and now. Hear the word of the Lord from Daniel chapter 8. It says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, and the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. 
And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray this morning for his blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for your word, for even such bewildering images that are before us this morning. Help us by your spirit to be able to understand it to the degree that we are able, Father. Bless the words that come from myself here this morning, Father. Help us in all of these things to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, who here has heard the expression, uh, poke the bear, or don't poke the bear? Don't poke the bear. Uh, well, it's, a, it's an expression that didn't take off until the Cold War, when it was often used as a warning not to rile the nuclear-armed Soviet Union. Russia had a long time um, had the bear uh, as a symbol attributed to it. Uh, we see Russia in the news a lot this morning as well. Large amounts of troops amassing at the Ukraine border, stoking fears of war. So this kind of a saying might uh, feel fresh in some of our minds um, for some of us. But what this phrase brings to mind as we consider Daniel 8 is for this tendency for us to associate animals with uh, certain countries and with certain nations. So we have the bear uh, with Russia, for example. We have the beaver with Canada, uh, the lion with a whole host of African nations. Uh, we've become ingrained with this illustrative notion of animals with countries that it's, it's really become a way for us to um, describe such nations by the characteristics of these creatures, perhaps in a way that paints a very colorful picture um, for those with an imaginative mind. Well, before us, and what Daniel sees in his vision, is 
a ram and a goat. This is a goat that we discover later on is kind of a mutant of sorts, uh, sprouting other horns beyond what is typical of such. And it's revealed to Daniel that these animals represent kingdoms and empires, uh, the Medo-Persian and Greek empires, respectively. And in the opening verses of our text, you'll recognize that Daniel saw this vision once again in the third year of King Belshazzar. Once again, we're back in the Babylonian Empire where Daniel gets a glimpse into the future of what is going to befall this kingdom and others after it. The third year of King Belshazzar was around Uh, 550 BC. So this is around the same time that Cyrus is out there conquering the Medes under his Persian rule, where he will then combine the two into the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the end of the Babylonian kingdom is nigh. It is at hand. But what is particularly important in this vision is what Daniel sees regarding these, king, these coming kingdoms and their relationship and treatment, particularly, of the people of God, of the saints. At the very end of our text, Daniel describes it as appalling. We'll see how many years uh, uh, from Daniel the, the camp of the enemy is going to surround the people of God and all things are going to appear appalling and hopeless. And when we get a glimpse of this vision along with Daniel, we long to fix our eyes upon the one who can provide hope in this seemingly hopeless situation. Amidst the apparent hopelessness in the present, even, we are exhorted to turn our eyes to the Lord of hope the one who we are to be continually reminded is the God of the past, the present, and also the future. But as a way to kind of help us see this, we're going to turn to two points here. We're going to see the rise and triumph of evil, because if we're not kidding ourselves, we'll see that evil does rise, and it does apparently triumph in some circumstances, but then we're also going to turn to our response uh, to that. So the rise and triumph of evil, this is really spanning almost the entirety of this text that we'll see from verses 3 through 25. I will let you know that there is going to be um, a vast amount of historical detail that's been um, poured into this message. But we're really going to start to see with these ram, this ram and this goat, you really see evil competing with evil. Daniel first sees a two-horned ram in verses 3 through 4. Remember, um, a couple weeks ago, Dr. Beach had made this mention of what horns symbolize in prophetic literature. Horns symbolize strength. They symbolize power. Uh, And this goat, this ram, has different sized horns, and it's representing the Medo Persian Empire, respectively speaking, Persian uh, being stronger. And this ram, it charged in all sorts of directions. Cyrus defeated the Babylonian Empire. He conquered rapidly in all sorts of directions in the known world at the time. And this Medo-Persian Empire would be a lengthy one, semi-lengthy, contrasting it with other kingdoms. Uh, About 200 years it would be in existence. 
And interestingly enough, when Persian kings were on a military march against their enemies, guess what they would carry with them? They would carry a golden ram's head. So it's no mistake that the ram is associated with the Medo-Persian Empire. And as verse 4 tells us, he did as he pleased and became great. Already we're seeing this narcissistic empire evil kingdom rising up, but he is not without competition down the road because Daniel sees this one-horned goat that came from the west and it came from across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Just picture this goat charging at its enemies, but seemingly as if it's flying, not touching the ground. One giant leap to destroy its opponent. We're told that this goat is... Greece. Now, all scholars agree that this symbolizes the conquests of Alexander the Great, who swept the world, as one person put it, like a knife through butter, destroying all in his path, including Medo-Persia. John Golden Gate writes this, he said, over a period of four years, four years, between 334 and 331 BC, Alexander quite demolished the Persian Empire and established an empire of his own, extending from Europe to India. This is huge, all under the power of one very young man, this horn, Alexander the Great. No wonder this goat came at the ram, as we're told, with great wrath, as Scripture tells us. The competition is real. We have an evil nation competing with an evil nation. Verse 7 says that he was enraged, angry even, against the ram, struck it, and broke his two horns. Done. Dead. Demolished. Greece is powerful, and it is here to stay. Because the ram, it had no power to stand before him. And he was cast down to the ground and trampled on. And there was no one, no one who could rescue the ram from his power. But even with this goat, even in this great empire, it was split into four regions after Alexander's sudden death. Uh, This goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, as Scripture tells us, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there sprouted four horns, conspicuous horns, Scripture says, toward the four winds of heaven. These horns point to a fourfold division of the kingdom of Alexander's generals. They were Cassander, Lysimachus, and two very important ones. We have one whose name is Seleucus. He was ruler of Syria and other regions to the east. And then another one named Ptolemy, who was ruler over Egypt. And the homeland of the Jews was first ruled. So we're talking about Israel here. The Greek empire conquered all of this area. The homeland of the Jews was first ruled by Ptolemy. And then in 198 B.C., Palestine came under the control of the Seleucid dynasty from Antioch in Syria. This is the beginning of a very, very troubling time for the Jews in this period of history, once the Seleucid dynasty takes over. 
what we really see, even, even if, if we're just to pause for a moment, it's, a, it's plenty of some historical details so far of where we're at with the Greek Empire in Israel. But we really do see behind all of this how God raises up and even destroys empires for his purposes. He raises up and he destroys for his purposes. But even in his mysterious providence, the way that some empires are destroyed is by them destroying each other. Evil dynasties are used as tools to destroy each other. How often do we even see that today in uh, the past 100 or 200 years or so when war breaks out and nation rises against nation? So already we're getting a glimpse that, yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, it looks like it's triumphing. But remember, God is at work. He is sovereign. He is in control of all these things that have taken place so far. He knows what he is doing. He is the author of history, after all, the ancient of days. So we've seen evil competing with evil, one nation getting the upper hand and rising to power, and is about ready to just plunge into the nation of Israel and begin a sort of reign of terror, if you will. Reign of terror uh, coming from that phrase in the French Revolution when many people died under a reign of tyranny. And this, the Jews in Israel are going to undergo a reign of terror. And this reign of terror is depicted by the reign of the little horn that grew great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, the glorious land being Israel itself, particularly Jerusalem. Once again, all biblical scholars agree practically unanimously that this little horn can be historically identified. I've mentioned his name in the past before, but this is clearly a reference to Antiochus IV, from the Seleucid dynasty in Syria. He reigned from 175 to 163 BC. Um, what he's going to do, interestingly enough, he's going, to, he's going to adopt a name for himself. He's going to call himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes comes from the Greek word for manifest. And when you put that together with um, um, Epiphanes together, it means God manifests. So what he's doing is he's signifying that he considers himself a literal manifestation of divine power that he's going to completely boast in and self-indulge in as he continues his reign of terror against the people of God. It's really a way of him desecrating the entire area that he is in, telling them, you think you worship a God? Well, look at me and look what I can do to you. He acted with great hostility toward the Jews in Jerusalem. He was the very manifestation of very blasphemous evil and the cause of immense suffering and oppression. Lord willing, if we get to Daniel chapter 11 in a few months, we'll see even more details surrounding Antiochus. But uh, we'll deal only with what this text describes this morning. It's one uh, author outlined the way that Antiochus propagated himself before God's people. He does so in a threefold way. 
what he does, and this isn't just limited to Antiochus, this is any um, evil that is opposed to the Lord. Antiochus sins against God. He sins against God's people, and he sins against God's truth. Sins against God, he sins against God's people, and he sins against God's truth. And thinking of Antiochus and his regime sinning against God, you can see in verses 10 through 11 that um, it grew great, this horn did, even to the host of heaven itself. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. We get a very grotesque image already of what Antiochus is capable of here, uh, elevating himself to an almost cosmic level, uh, challenging the Lord and challenging his army. Indeed, for Antiochus to throw the stars to the ground and trample on them is, even by extension, his persecution of the people of God. But in so doing, he is directly attacking God himself. Antiochus hates the things of Yahweh. He ordered that all ceremonial observances to him be completely eliminated and forbidden. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing, guess what in there? A pig, which would have been an incredibly blasphemous act to Yahweh. If you're interested in reading more about this, this is actually all recorded in the apocryphal work of First and Second Maccabees, where we read of what we call the Maccabean Revolt, where Antiochus invaded Israel, but a, a coalition of Jewish rebels rose up and eventually put an end to the tyranny. But what, uh, what Antiochus did was uh, continuing with his campaign. He had the high priest... Onias III assassinated, um, kicking off his campaign. Uh, his is a reign of deceit. His is a reign of untruth. Verse 12 tells us that he will throw truth to the ground, body slam it, done. And in verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. He sins against God. He sins against God's people, and he sins against God's truth. Well, notice these prophetic words in verse 24. They're striking to us. It doesn't say that Antiochus might do these things. No, it says he shall cause fearful destruction. And guess what? He shall He will succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Thousands of Jews will die. It's going to happen. But notice what comes before that in the beginning of verse 24. This little horn, his power will be great, but not by his own power. Antiochus' reign of terror against God's people isn't a mere possibility. It will happen. But in the mystery of God's counsel, it is ordained by God himself to happen. The author of all of history 
all things that take place. God is going to take his people through trial. And once again, Lord willing, if we get there, I hope we do, chapter 11 is really going to spell that out from a, a, a very heavenly perspective on what it looks like for God's people to come out of suffering and persecution. You know, we see evil manifested in so many ways today. Um, arrayed against those of us in Christ. Are you surprised by it, though? Maybe? If we're thinking of it from the flesh, yeah, totally. That really caught me off guard that um, this court and this state would really do that against God's people. Why would they do that? Don't they realize what they're doing? But if we think about Christ's words to us in Scripture, what does he say? He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will. And we still continue to see today this coalition of anti-God, anti-God's people, anti-God's truth forces against us. We see that in a supreme way by the many uh, ways of physical violence and persecution that takes place around the world, particularly in the Middle East and in China. But even coming down into the West here and in um, societal, institutional ways of, of evil being arrayed against God's people in the abortion industry, the, the, this hypersexual revolution of moral relativity, you believe what you believe, that's okay. I'll believe what I want, that's okay. Truth is gone and is thrown out the door. Well, Antiochus serves as an archetype of these things. He's just one of many manifestations of evil to come until Christ returns. But when evil does come, Evil, we could say to some degree, is limited. It is never permitted to exhaust fully its full energy against God's people. Look at verses 13 through 14. When uh, the question is raised, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host be trampled underfoot? How long is this persecution and tyranny and reign of terror going to last? Do you have an answer? We can't stand to know that this could be indefinite. Tell us, let us know, is this going to ever come to an end? And the answer is a very enigmatic one. We're told, uh, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Puzzling whenever numbers are uh, written in Scripture. But to simply put it this way, if you calculate 2,300 days, it is just a little over six years. It is not a full seven. The number seven, for, for many of us, we recognize that in Scripture as the number of completion. And for 2,300 days to run its course and conclude, just shy of seven years indicates that this will not be a complete 
time of suffering. It is a period that will be cut off for the sake of God's people. These are days that will be numbered. That's comforting to know. We can also look at um, these comments that the, the, um, the angelic visitor mentions about uh, the end, the latter end of the indignation uh, in verse 19, and how um, they encourage Daniel to understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. How else is this comforting for us to know? Well, given the context of what we've just read and what we've just studied here, uh, clearly this end, so to speak, does not concern the end, capital E, when Jesus comes back, the end of the world, the, the, the dissolution of the cosmos and all of that. But this refers to the end of the future tyrannical reign of Antiochus himself. Think of this as one entry in a whole saga that is still yet to come. You can think of things like uh, the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. There are entries in all of these things, but guess what? Every single one of them has an ending. But we don't come to the end of of, of the second in a trilogy and say, it's all over. Wow, it's done. What a great ending. We say, no, this is the ending of this one. The end is still to come. And that's what this is with Antiochus, this period of history in the second century BC is just one end of many more to come down the road. As one author put it, he says, these various events in the Bible then function as previews or prefigurations of the ultimate end, capital E, when the powers of evil reach their worst. They are stitched by the power of God alone. This is why we should not be taken back when evil rears its head, of course, every single day, but when evil tends to get worse, leading up until the time of Jesus' second coming. Well, that was a lot of history. That was a lot of exposition and description of this uh, prophecy, this vision that Daniel has. How do we respond to all of that? Well, let's hear Daniel's response, and we'll, we'll learn a few things from that. He says in verses 26 through 27, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. He has been told to seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. There is an appointed end to this period in history that has been divinely appointed by the author of time for his people. God remains in control, as we see, just as God ordains the four horsemen of Revelation whose uh, hoof beats are very loud today. God ordained this ram and this goat in history past to do what they did. And Daniel remains appalled by the vision. 
not fully understanding it. But what does he do? He goes about his business as usual. The ordinariness of Daniel's action here is just astounding in light of what he has just seen. He's been given this graphic image of almost sheer total destruction of his people sometime in the future, two kingdoms from now where he is. The sheer horror of what is about to befall them under tyrannical rule. Think about it if you had a dream one night and just by way of illustration, you knew that it was of the Lord and that he had showed you what was to come. What if he showed you this church building raised to the ground, fire and bodies of congregant members here everywhere? How would you wake up the next morning? Would you go about your business as usual? There are three things that Daniel perhaps would have done after receiving this vision. Not that he would have done so before after having many visions before, but he really would have taken into account and adjusted his worldview and really dwell on how the sovereignty of God is at play given what is about to happen and given um, his involvement in raising up and destroying kingdoms and nations. Daniel would have anticipated with fear, no doubt, the terrible evils that are about to be arrayed against God's people. But then thirdly, he would have known that someday and sometime, somehow, in God's own time, and in God's own way, the end would come. Certainly the end of this period of persecution would come to a conclusion. But no doubt he knew that the end, capital E, would come as well. It's hard to do, but do we take comfort in our affliction, whatever we are going through? That God is sovereign over all things, everything that takes place in your life. Daniel took what he knew and he took it back into the workplace, back into his normal daily routine. He continued to serve where he was called to serve under a pagan nation, knowing that other pagan nations were coming. Serving, though, the ultimate ruler, God himself, who is Lord over all authorities and principalities, and we're called to do the same thing. But that, congregation, I understand, is very difficult. You know, at times where it might not be governmental forces that are afflicting us, like they did all those hundreds of years ago to the saints, but at times we remain afflicted by those dark forces that are behind all of that anyways, by the forces of power and principalities of darkness. You may be experiencing appalling events and circumstances in your life that you just can't fully understand. And you cry, why, Lord? We might, we probably won't, know 
all the answers as to why God ordains certain things to take place in our lives that scar us and afflict us, but we can rest in this. There is a ram. There is a goat. But there was also an event in history where all things seemed hopeless, but it was a lamb that hung on a cross, right? And uh, conquered death and evil. And uh, triumphs over the ram, the goat. Yeah, he walks beside all of us in our pain (laughs) and the things we go through and uh, our fear of the past, the present, and the future. He's the one who was, who is, and is to come, who is ever with his people in this frightful age. May we look to him day by day and have courage to go about every single day, even in the regular routines of our lives, knowing that all things All things, even though they appear frightful to us, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. It's a purpose embedded right here in history. Even so, may our prayer become Lord Jesus, that that capital E end may come. When all that is appalling may be destroyed, where tears are wiped away, where all is made new to the glory of God, in whose presence we will enjoy forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lamb that was slain, who hung on a cross, whose blood was shed for our transgressions. May we hold fast to that, and may we hold fast to his conquering over evil, over death, that we too may become more than conquerors as we go forward throughout this week for the remainder of our lives. Speak to us, Lord, continually through your word. Encourage us in these things. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.